For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Good morning, everyone. For, for new people, I'm Tygen Layton, the guiding Dharma teacher at Ancient Dragons Zen Gate. Um, it's my great pleasure to introduce our guest speaker tonight, Hosan Alan Snoki, old friend, um, multi-talented. You should check out his CDs as well as uh, his Dharma talks. Um, and uh, uh, Alan is the uh, abbot of the Berkeley Zen Center. Um, important Zen uh, group in in America now. And we'll speak today about radical hope, which uh, I'm looking forward to. And yes, let's have hope. Thank you, Tygen. Um And uh, good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Yes, good. Uh, Nice to see you all in Chicago and to see you in this uh, new space or temporarily new space. Uh, it's been a very concentrated uh, period here. Uh, we had a our first in-person practice period in three years. Uh, which ended a couple of weeks ago with a uh, kind of finessed five-day session uh, and a shuso. Uh, and a week after that, we had uh, my teachers, Judge Mel Weitzman Roshi's long-delayed uh, funeral, uh, which took place at Green Gulch, uh, which was wonderful. Uh, and... Uh, well intended, well attended in uh, person, and also on Zoom, and uh, it was a very elaborate funeral with lots of literal bells and drums, and uh, and fire, and uh, and beautiful words, heartfelt words from people. Uh, and then a week after that, uh, I began a, another long delayed. Uh, set of ceremonies uh, to give <laughs> Dharma transmission to uh, two students, uh, Juan Frederica Bosavain and Nansan Harald Schokelman, uh, who lead the Wind and Clouds Sangha in the far north of Germany. Uh, and they came, they came over here and Fortunately, they made the flight without contracting uh, the newest variant of uh, COVID, and we completed Dharma transmission the night before last. So uh, I feel very uh, held by the Dharma in this in this particular period. And of course, it's a period when a lot of really difficult and uh, terrible things are going on in the world. And I will I will talk about that and and what might be our dharmic way of holding that. So I want to start with a short polytext from. Uh, the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the major collections of the Buddha's teachings. Uh, and this is called, this is from the Jata Sutta. Uh, and so the Brahman Jata Bharvaja, uh, Jata means, uh, actually means tangle. Uh, so the Jata, the Brahman Jata Bar Baravaja came to Shravasti 
to see the Buddha and to ask this question. The inner tangle and the outer tangle. This generation is entangled in a tangle. I ask you this, Gotama, who can untangle this tangle? The inner tangle and the outer tangle. This generation is entangled in a tangle. I ask you this, Gotama, who can untangle this tangle? When I first heard these words, it was in a a Dharma talk given by uh, our sister Kathy Fisher many years ago here at Berkeley Zen Center. And I just found it a, a stunning verse that seemed to be a piece of modern poetry. Uh, But in fact, it's a piece of ancient wisdom. And you find this in the, in this Jata Sutta. And it's also, if any of you are familiar with it, it's the epigraph to the uh, path of purification by Buddha Gosa. Uh, it's it's actually it's the epigraph and the entire the entire encyclopedic uh, collection of meditation practices uh, is the answer to that question. Uh, it's all a response to that question, but Buddha had a Buddha had a more succinct response. Uh, he said, and I, I've. Uh, I've fine-tuned the language for uh, a kind of inclusivity. A man or woman established in virtue, wise, developing the mind and wisdom, a practitioner ardent and discreet, one like this can untangle the tangle. So we live with our intertangle from day one, right? All our desires, our sorrows, our joys, and uh, the gravitational pull of aging and illness and we also live with the outer tangle of the world. Uh, in both those tangles, the I think the the through line is uncertainty and impermanence, and this is really important. This is what our practice, what our practice is about, is reckoning with uncertainty and impermanence and in a sense embracing it as the condition for waking up and uh, not rejecting it because it can't be done. You know, as we know, you, you can't pin anything down. So you could also say uh, that this tangle is intimately involved with our actions. Our actions are either uh, a reaction to our perception of the tangle or their actions in response to it that that meet it. And this is uh, actions is what we might back translate uh, as karma. And as we know, uh,
second. Karma is, if we look at, uh, we look at our lives, our karma follows us. And I'll come back to this. Uh, we tend to identify with it as owning it, uh, but actually, uh, in a sense, it owns us. And, you know, when we do our bodhisattva ceremony, are you doing bodhisattva ceremony again yet? Not yet. We, we need to we need to re-engage with that, you know, as soon as it's safe to gather people in numbers in the Zendo. Uh, the first repentance verse where we begin the ceremony is, all my ancient tangled karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, I now fully avow. So in a sense, it's, we're taking personal responsibility for it, but it's, uh, it is and it isn't my ancient tangled karma. It's ancient tangled karma that has, uh, you know, karma has like a sticky quality and uh, it adheres to what we provisionally call me. Uh, so we think it's ours, but it's actually uh, just out there. So um, I don't know if this is necessary, uh, but uh, when I was speaking at in Berkeley last week, I felt that uh, maybe I should offer a trigger warning here uh, because I'm going to contextualize uh, some things that some of you may not see as properly dharmic. You may see them as as uh, really too political. Uh, I know that you know your teacher uh, does not shy away from addressing these kinds of questions. So uh, I feel like I'm probably in, in safe territory, but I give this warning anyway. Uh, That's interesting. So, in recent weeks, I've been all tangled up uh, in just this series of horrific public events. We have now this week the assassination of Shinzo Abe in, in Japan, which is really unusual for Japan, although actually it wasn't so unusual in Japan in the 20s and 30s, where there were uh, quite a number of political assassinations, uh, but not since then. We have the uh, racist murders in uh, Buffalo in May. And shortly after that, the, the killing of, I think, 19 children and two teachers in Uvalde, Texas. We have uh, the shootings that took place there in Chicago suburb on uh, the July 4th weekend, you know, we, we have, there have been th more than 300 mass shootings documented in this country in just 2022, which is just a stunning number. And on the other hand, 
if you look at it in the context of the United States being far and away the largest arms dealer in the world, it's not surprising. It's karmic. It's what goes around comes around. And, you know, guns are everywhere. We have, and I really didn't get this. I think I just didn't let it rise to the surface of my mind uh, until the recent series of Supreme Court decisions. Uh, You know, we knew that there was a conservative majority, but... uh, We look at the at the uh, the Dobbs ruling on uh, women's fundamental right to determine their reproductive health. Uh, we look at rulings about the separation of church and state. Uh, rulings about uh, against setting any limits on the public public carry of guns. We look at ruling that basically eviscerates the enforcing strength of uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. And, you know, we see that the uh, supermajority, conservative supermajority of the Supreme Court uh, is in command. And I think we can expect a continuing series of rulings that deconstruct what appeared to have been settled settled legal precedent and throwing us back from the 21st century to the uh, you know to the late 18th century uh, and it's not something that I don't think most of us imagined could happen, but it's happening. So, uh, and then we have, you know, the unfolding spectacle of uh, the January 6th hearings, uh, looking at the really desperate and deranged narcissistic activities of a so-called president and all the people who went along with it, even even though there were some who really tried to resist, but seemingly they didn't try hard enough because we we had very close to an overthrow of government closer, I think, than we can than we can quite imagine. So I think it's reasonable to ask, uh, are we moving towards the kind of autocracy that we see in uh, present-day Hungary of Viktor Orban? Uh, are we moving towards the kind of unholy theocracy that we see in uh, the violence, uh, the anti-Muslim violence of Narendra Modi's India, or uh, Burma's conflation of military dictatorship and Buddhist nationalism. Uh, And, you know, we have it here in the merging of... uh, the evangelical church and uh, the right-wing political movements that are trying to deconstruct institutions of uh, trying and attempting to deconstruct institutions of democracy. Uh, And I've said this before. uh, I think it's, it's really proven history that whenever Western religion and uh, the modern nation state join forces, 
violence is a result. And in a sense, we're lucky to be practicing Buddhism, which I think we're safe in saying is not likely to be wielding state state power in this country. Uh, So when I look at this widespread suffering in the Saha world, I'm angry, I'm frightened, I'm grieving, And of course, it's true that the the terrible losses and abuses of today are just the unending pattern of history. You know, just looking back on my own life, uh, how many times have I said to myself, this is the worst. And yet... it can get worse, Uh, and it may. Uh, And I worry that, to pick up what I was saying a moment ago, that we have, we are decidedly stepping over uh, a threshold into fascism. And I also understand the seductive power of greed, hate, and delusion. And it's true, it's true that uh, humans have come again and again to the brink of apocalypse and cataclysm. But now, you know, looking at the the vast proliferation of nuclear weapons and the systematic uh, destruction of, of our environment and climate, we may be really on the brink of committing uh, our species suicide for ourselves. So, to return to the matter of karma, uh, in the Upajatana Sutta, uh, which is the sutra in which the Buddha outlines uh, what he calls the five reflections, the fifth reflection is this. I am the owner of my karma, my actions. Heir to my actions, born of my actions, related through my actions, and have my actions uh, as my arbitrator, whatever I do for good or for evil, to that I will fall heir. And then he continues, interestingly, uh, to broaden the scope of this, saying, a disciple of the noble ones considers this, I am not the only one who is owner of my actions, heir to my actions, one of my actions. In other words, my actions have effect more widely. They affect more than myself, as do other people's actions affect us. So, past, present, and future, all beings are affected and interdependent on the actions of all beings. I'm really grateful that, uh, you know, in the various forums and uh, discussions that have been happening among Buddhist teachers, I feel very sustained by the voices and actions of many Buddhist teachers speaking clearly about how they see things and what they are doing. What is to be done? Many things. And I think that there's still room and there's much that we can do 
as individuals, as communities, as sanghas, as societies, uh, to at least mitigate the violence and the hatred that's in the air. And I'm sure if you talk, you can email me, or if you talk to Tigan, we can we can happy be happy to make suggestions to you. But you, and you can make suggestions to us uh, because a lot of you are working on this. But I want to, at last, come to this question of hope, uh, which has been a conundrum for me. Uh, we have, uh, you know, one thread of teachings which strongly advises us to be uh, hopeless, wishless. It's one of the three doors of liberation, uh, wishlessness or hopelessness. Uh, in other words, not putting something in front of you as a, essentially as a gaining idea, which I'm sure we've all heard about in our tradition. But I think that that's a distortion of the way uh, I want to talk about hope. Uh, it's what I want to talk about is, in a sense, hopelessly hoping, which I think is a Crossy Stills and Nash song, is that right? Uh, um, and I want to reference a really excellent book. Uh, that I strongly recommend to all of you. It's called Radical Hope, Ethics in the Face of Cultural Devastation. And it's written by Jonathan Lear, uh, who teaches social thought and philosophy at the University of Chicago. Some of you might even know him. I don't know. Uh, And... The, at the core of this book is a story that presented itself to him that really set his inquiry in motion. And it talks about the last great chief of the, the Crow Indian nation. Uh, his name was Plenty Koo, C-O-U-P-S, And before he died in 1932, he told a kind of autobiographical narrative to Montana writer and uh, ethnographer and ally, uh, Frank Linderman. And he tells at the end of this, I'm not going to relate the story. It's, really encourage you to read the book. Uh, But at the end of the, at the end of the story where he sees, uh, he sees that in in a dream that he had when he was 10 years old, the Buffalo disappear, the trees disappear. Um, the people march up into the sky as ghosts and the people who are left, what he says is when the Buffalo went away, the hearts of my people fell to the ground and they could not lift them up again. After this, nothing happened. Such a just stunning phrase. After this, nothing happened. So this is the the falling away in in the case of of the crow, the destruction of their entire culture, their whole uh, the whole system of their of their being, which was the framework of that was uh, hunting uh, 
and a, a nomadic life and a life based on the land, based on the buffalo, and also a warrior culture, uh, which was a culture of, of honor, not a... Uh, it was based on courage and honor uh, that was inculcated through the entire society. All this was gone. And Plentiku's uh, dream was a, a prescient intuition because he had this dream in the early 1860s. And this was before the tribe was devastated, but it was clear to anyone who was observing that the incursion of white settlers was voted the end of uh, Native culture. And some resisted this fiercely, which was an honorable thing to do, and some understood that irrespective of their resistance, uh, everything would be lost. Maybe that is the state of mind, the state of being that we are entering in this country and in other places in the world. Uh, certainly these are, these are things that Joanna Macy writes about. Uh, there are things that are talked about in another excellent book, Learning to Die in the Anthropocene, that all that we value may disappear. What is it then? How do we live then? What do we try to carry that is even more essential than the particular the particularities of our of our culture or, or our perceived way of life. And that is uh, a question that, that Lear asks. And it's also, I think, important to say, the Lear doesn't bring this up, but it, it's so clear that our, our practice is premised on the fact that, not that this may happen, or it's likely to happen, but it's going to happen for each of us as individuals. And, you know, uh, as we move out of our youth, where, you know, we had this, we may have had this uh, unspoken notion that we were immortal. Uh, mortality gets ever closer. At least that's what I feel. Uh, as I'm 74, and it's you know, and I've and we're seeing now people in our generation dying naturally. This is aside from unnatural deaths, but what we see is that. Ultimately, everything that we have and are goes away. And our practice is about, it's learning to deal with that. And just as we own our, our karma, I think it's really important. We have this choice, you know, and this is a choice that's starkly, Framed by so our Soto teachers, it's like, do you want to be pushed and pulled around by karma, or do you want to live by vow, live by practice? This is our choice, and if we choose to do that, uh, our practice is one of the 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 two through lines that we can use, we can rely on to the end. We can rely on our breath, 
until we take our last breath. And we can rely on our practice uh, so long as we have any thread of awareness. And this is what, again, my interpretation of what Plenty Coup is saying, because there's a continuation or it's a later dream. And in that dream, uh, he dreams of himself uh, in a wide, on a wide plain. And on that plain, there's one tree. And there's an old man sitting at the foot of that tree. And he recognizes that that old man is him. And in the tree is a chickadee. Chickadee person. Very small, humble bird. You know, lacking the grandeur of an eagle or a hawk or the strength, but having the flexibility and the kind of uh, natural wisdom to survive. And the skill that the chickadee brings and communicates to the old man sitting at the foot of the tree who is communicating to the young boy having the dream, who then grows up to be the chief that communicates that wisdom back to his whole tribe, that wisdom is the wisdom of listening. The radical hope is based on listening, listening to the wisdom of others and the wisdom that is that arises within oneself and it's a recognition of listening to the wisdom of others is a recognition of their our interdependence and that is the fundamental basis of Hope. The fundamental basis of hope is that we understand we are not alone. We are connected to other beings, we're connected to something that is much vaster than we can encompass or understand. And that will support us. And this, I think, is at the heart of our practice. This is why, you know, our teachers, you know, it's, I'm, looking, I'm looking at the temple view right now, uh, and I can see, you know, you have a bunch of people sitting together. And in this peculiar Zoom world, uh, we can see each other, and in this, you know, in this weird fashion, we are sitting together. We are supporting each other. We have, I'm sure you've learned this. We've learned this in, in Berkeley over the last three years. And it's been quite remarkable because we've built kind of new new tendrils of connection uh, and new relationship. Uh, which includes people who've not even who've never even met, and yet we see each other every day, and we begin to form uh, real, endurable connections, uh, durable connections, and uh, and then now we get to see each other when we show up at the zendo, but this is the hope that. Plenty who uh, transmitted to his people, and at least in Lear's telling of the of the history, they were able to survive. 
they were able to find a way to make a way of life on a uh, a reservation that was a lot was much much smaller than what they had than their territory had been. Uh, but they learned to look at all of the resources around them and figure out how to reconstruct a life, even though what had previously been the pervasive values, even though that was gone. So that's at least pointing to what I've been raising as radical hope. Uh, Hopelessly hoping. Attending to our dreams, attending to the dreams of others, and maintaining our practice every day maintaining our practice as long as we live. So I think I will stop there, and I I hope there's some time for questions, answers, comments, uh, and however you want to, however you're used to organizing that, just, just let me know. Tell me what to do. So, uh, David Ray, uh, thank you very much, Ozan. Uh, David Ray, would you please call on people in the room or uh, in the Zoom? Uh, you can raise your hands physically or go to the participants window in the bottom and uh, hit the raise hand icon there. And um, yeah, how do we respond to this stark reality that Alan has so clearly presented and the possibilities also? So. Please, uh, comments, responses, questions, feel free. For those of us here at Ebenezer, if you would just uh, just begin to speak up and, and, and do so loud. Uh, I, I can't see the people raising hands. Um, if, you're, if you're on Zoom, I can probably see you raise your, your actual hand, but you can also use the raise hand function. I think I see a hand raised. Yeah. Yes, Bryant. Thank you. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, fine. Yeah, thank you very much for an excellent talk on probably the most necessary topic uh, of our current times um, and the book suggestion. I will uh, first thing after this uh, seek out Radical Hope. Uh, I already had a book by Joanna Macy with Hope in the title, Um and she's been doing wonderful work, too, uh, as has uh, Tigan in bringing all of our awareness, uh, expanding it to including all these concepts of interdependence. Uh, I think the most valuable thing about that is that our society tends to <clears throat> our, our you, the United States, at least our history of individualism tends to train our minds in the opposite direction that, Hey, I can do my own thing. And, and that means I'm free. Uh, you know, and what a wonderful country that I can completely ignore the rest of all the rest of you because I'm free and I can do my own thing. And yet in the Dharma, as far as I've learned it, the concept of interdependence, uh, really gives us a deeper understanding, uh, and I think the correct one, of what freedom really means, that none of us are really free as long as some of the rest of us are not. Um, and so I, I guess, uh, you know, this this comment of mine is more just sort of praise for your talking on this topic and and how well you articulated it. I don't know if I have a question as much as it would be just, do you have any, uh, I mean, the obvious things to do, number one would be vote and encourage everyone else that we know uh, to vote. But do you have any other sort of 
rubber hits the road suggestions for practical things to do uh, right now, uh, in addition to continuing our Dharma practice? Yeah. Um, one of the immediate response is to point you, and you can find this on YouTube, there's an amazing song by Solomon Burke called None of Us Are Free. Uh, it's really, it really nails it. And he's just, you know, he's just a majestic singer. Uh, so I point you towards that. It's it's important to get our inspiration from music, writing, art, uh, all of that. Uh, one thing that comes to mind is I've been, I've been reading an interesting book by uh, a psychoanalyst named Alan Rowland, who uh, writes about the sense of self in uh, India, Japan, and the West. And it's true that, uh, that there's a different formation. There's a different social formation of self in different cultures. Uh, and ours is particularly individualistic. Uh, and I think there's, there's, there's strengths and weaknesses in all of that. There's strengths in the individualistic, there's strengths in being an individual and there's dangers in, uh, kind of the merging of a, a weeness. Uh, so I think it's our responsibility to um, carefully craft ourselves with with those various dynamics. And I think that that's actually the experiment of Sangha in the West. It's, you know, uh, it's drawing from the strengths of both of those cultural vectors or many cultural vectors. And it is um, hopefully mitigating some of the weaknesses of it. But uh, we are in this together. No question. What was the, the gentleman's name again? Roland? Uh, Alan Roland, A L A N R O L A N D. Thank you. Yeah. May I ask that the volume be turned up a little? Whether there's traffic, I, I can't pick up. Whose volume? Mine. Yes. I'm, I'm afraid that the volume is is at the at the max. Maybe it's possible to move closer. Uh, yeah, mine mine is at the max also. But anyway. I think we're all maxed, including the cars. I'm, I'm, I just got a little bit closer. Okay, I see uh, Nyozan's hand. Uh, good morning, and uh, it's good to see you. And thank you for a really wonderful talk. Um, <clears throat> people who know me know me as one of those people who tend to be on the um, dubious side of um, deploying the concept of hope, um, you know, leaning a little bit to that side of, of seeing it as presenting a lot of dangers. Uh, so it may be slightly odd for me to be presenting this now, um, but in relative terms, um, in Jonathan Lear's book, uh, our hearts fell to the ground, and after that, nothing happened. And uh, he goes on to elaborate what's the nature of this uh, statement. Nothing happened because, uh, you know, in fact, people are still trying to sketch together food. They're still leading their lives. They're trying to reconstruct. But what was gone was the entire framework yeah. 
that could constitute any particular action as meaningful. And our situation, as absolutely grim as it is on almost every front, is a little bit different because even though we have this, you know, we are witnessing this process of deconstruction and just straight out destruction, um, you know, we are still, um, we still have access to, you know, all the social cultural patterns that, um, can constitute an action is meaningful and therefore can let us proceed to act in the best way that we can. I mean, we're still, you know, we can still refer to the constitution, even though we see what's happening with it um, and all these things. So, so that's just my little plug. Yes, things are pretty grim, but um, we, we are still in relative terms as, as a culture and as a society slightly better position to respond powerfully to the negative things that are going on. Um, I'd also like to comment on, on, you know, as you pointed out, um, uh, brought up with your citation of the poly passage, um, you know, sometimes that's uh, put in, we see that in the form of the five reflections. Another one of which is, you know, we are of the nature to be separated from everything that we hold uh, near and dear or something like this. Um, and that indicates in, in as, as, as again, you, uh, you know, quite adroitly pointed out at some fundamental level, this has always been our situation yeah. and always will be. And this is what uh, the Buddha addressed himself to. So, um, so yes, I mean, I think in terms of practice, it's just kind, in some ways, kind of a particular focus or sharpening of our perception of actually a situation that we have been, are in, and will always be in until we're no longer in a position to be in any position. Um, and then finally, you know, since you, uh, since you, uh, kind of, uh, raised, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash in the context of, um, uh, of your talk, I, I remembered another line from a song called Carry On, which is rejoice, rejoice, we have no choice. And <laughs> in some sense, um, yeah, I mean, like plenty coup, um, you know, we're in this particular situation. So what do we do? Well, we do have a choice. We can shut down entirely or we can move towards what is good, what is positive, what is healing, what is wholesome, and so on. So much to my surprise, this is my little, uh, my little, uh, peon to a kind of hope. Um, surprised to hear from my mouth. Thank you. Thank you, Nozan. You know, I had to, I made the same shift, in, you know, uh, a few months back as I was thinking about this, because, uh, there's, you can, find on youtube there's a uh, a dialogue that i had with rebecca solnit at upaya a number of years ago on the question of hope and you know she took the hope stand and i took the hopeless stand uh my hopelessness was not negative it was just you know it was somewhat critical and i feel like i've i've moved uh and i do i agree that we have we have not lost everything uh, as as a society yet, but I think that it's it's good to see that that can happen. And we have examples of you know, if you look at what's going on in the Ukraine, that happened overnight for that country. You know, uh, one day they were living lives that maybe quite a few aspects resembled ours in the next day uh there are bombs bombs falling and people being killed in vast numbers and it happened overnight you know uh so that that can happen and uh also i think that as you were saying the model is that is the model is the is the arc of our own life 
but it's really important in the context of rejoice, you know, and I take my my own teacher's example. It would have been Sojin Roshi's 93rd birthday yesterday. Uh, he died about a year and a half ago, but he he just believed in uh, he believed in exercise. He believed in stretching. He believed in practice. You know, he believed in uh, within the scope of his abilities to do whatever he could, uh, which was another, which is an expression of of rejoicing. You know, and not to give up on those things. You know, not to. Uh, you know, just not to collapse, uh, uh, not to be resigned, but to try to stretch to meet the circumstances as best he could and to accept when those circumstances went away. So thank you. Is there anyone in the in the uh, room there? I can't. I don't know if there's anyone who has a, a question that has something she would like to offer. Okay. Um, speaking of books, I read a book that was riveting. It was about the fall of the Plains Indians, particularly the Comanches. And uh, the blurb for the book says the Comanches were the most powerful tribe in America or in the, in North America. And um, it's about a, a girl who was kidnapped when she was nine years old. Uh, she was a uh, she lived in a fort that they built on the edge of the plains, uh, on the edge of the uh, war, uh, the edge of where the white people were encroaching on the plains. And the Indians came and destroyed the fort and uh, killed her uncle and I think her father. Um, and they put her on a horse for four days and uh, took her back to their tribe. Well, she survived it. She was very strong. And she ended up marrying the chief of the tribe. But when the Comanches were really defeated, the white people came and took her back because she was their relative. Uh, this resulted in her, she loved, she, she was a she had been with the tribe since she was nine years old, and she was a member of the tribe, worked unbelievably hard to um, uh, keep the culture going. And bringing her back to white culture actually caused her death. Yeah. She didn't, she didn't know what happened to her son, Kanaan. And um, it turns out that he survived. He saw what was happening. You know, he put on a suit and tie, built a house for his four wives, which he refused. He refused to abandon his four wives. That was one of the things that the government wanted him to do, but he would not. And he invited the governor to dinner, and he became a real. Uh, interesting example of the transition that um, Native American that, that some Native Americans were able to make. This this book is called Empire of the Summer Moon. Yeah. It is absolutely a riveting story. Thank you. I've I've read that actually and I yeah and I know that story and I think it's there's a parallel with the story of Plenty Coup uh, yeah. Which is, which, which is important for us. It's the, it's, it's the lesson of not being stuck in your thinking about not being stuck on uh, what's a principle, you know. So in order to survive, they had a, they had to find a way to. Alan, Alan uh, there's a siren passing by. If you don't mind, just waiting a moment. People, people are unable to hear right this moment. Thank you. I think it's passed enough now. 
Um, in order to survive, a plenty coup, and for this this woman uh, or her son, uh, they had to find a way of being in relationship to uh, to the oppressors who had were murderous to their people, and you know that's very difficult. That's a that's a there's a, an ethical ambiguity there. <laughs> You know, we want to be pure, but purity is not all that it's cracked up to be. So um, how do we do this? You know, we have to make really difficult decisions. I think that that one of the things that, that I love about the Zen tradition, uh, and I had a conversation with, uh, with Bhikkhu Bodhi, you know, who was saying, well, you know, in the, in the, early Buddhist tradition, there's, there really isn't a lot of room for uh, ambiguity. Uh, it's something is wholesome or unwholesome. It's really, it's really binary. And in the kind of non-dual uh, realm of, uh, particularly I think of East Asian Buddhism, uh, it's not always so clear. And what we learn in our training is to reckon with various kinds of ambiguity. And that's, I think, what our teachers mean, what Suzuki Roshi and Sojin and Reb and Taigen and all of our teachers mean when they say, you know, you actually Zazen is about including everything. You know, it's including what, uh, what it's including what looks good, what looks bad, what looks pure and impure. So we can do that. I see. Maybe there's time for one more question, and it's is it Anastasia or Anastasia? You're muted. Right, I'm trying to get unmuted. It's Anastasia. So thank you very much for asking. Um, most people, no one ever does. Um, same name. But so I just wanted to thank you for um, mentioning about the trauma of others in that story from the book. Because I think one of the things that I recognize is this is not what's happening in the U.S. obviously is not new. It has happened to many people over the course of time, we here now, uh, you know, we are the, uh, the hand of the state. So I think the, the loss is very different. I'm not in terms of karma as well. The other people who have fallen or been beaten down by this particular system for so long, I think hope is different when you are the oppressor and mm. when you have already been, uh, brutalized and i mean this is not just as a as p as societies but also individuals i mean if if i've gone through a trauma my sense of hope well fought is going to be very different than someone who's never actually experienced it their sense of loss may be incredibly different at particular times because they haven't necessarily experienced a great enough loss and so i was just again very grateful also that you mentioned that our practice teaches us that we are all individually going through these stages of loss um, because life is impermanent. And we, you know, when you're young, you are the, you know, you're never going to die. You're immortal. And then as you age, you realize X and Y, but all of it makes sense. I mean, it was very powerful for me in that way, but even more so, thank you so much for uh, the notion of the fundamental basis of hope is realizing that we are not alone. That really touched me a great deal uh, today. So thank you very much for, in obviously, in the Zoom universe, because I don't know if we would have met uh, mm. otherwise, but um, there are some good things out of, what is that, the silver lining stuff? <laughs> anyway, thank you very much. Thank you. You know, for some reason, what comes up to 
in, in response, uh, as I'm in really in agreement with what you're saying, is something I learned about playing music. Uh, and, you know, I will say, I, I'm often, these days, in Buddhist context, I, you know, I'll use songs or I'll play songs, but my whole life, all of the music that I've played has been with people. You know, and I'm really only interested in music that I play with people. I'm not, uh, I don't have that talent that some people do of being their own orchestra, you know, of sort of playing with themselves. Uh, I can do it. But but what I learned about that is, so when you're playing in an ensemble uh, of any kind of music, I think, uh, the collective ensemble is making music and the coherence of that music, particularly the rhythmic coherence of that music is independent and interdependent. The independence means each musician needs to maintain the time and the beat. And they have to do that. They have to do, they have to stand up by themselves in that, in that musical space. At the same time, they have to be listening and responding and melding that with the other people in their performance. And I think this is, uh, to me, this is actually uh, the model of Sangha. And it's the model of healthy community, community that, that each person has their own voice has their own uh, role uh, and they have to, they really have to be attuned to that, but they have to simultaneously have this wide field of awareness of attunement to all that's going on around them in order to do something that's coherent. Does that make any sense? Yeah. So I think that's a good place to end. Uh, thank you all for the invitation. And uh, I look forward to seeing you next time. And my daughter lives in Chicago and sooner or later, I'm going to get out there and I'll be able to visit with you. Uh, I'm really, I'm looking forward to that, but you know, we keep getting wave after wave of COVID. So please be careful. Thank you. <laughs>